This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lemming When we talk about the various biomes of the world, indeed when we talk about our world itself, we tend to assume that everything natural is ancient. Oh sure, forests and jungles rise and fall, but the idea of forests and jungles and mountains and deserts, surely those are as old as the world itself, right? Jungles and deserts and mountains? Those are things the world has had for billions of years. Or millions of years, right? And surely we wouldn't expect an entirely new type of landform, a new environment, to just form a few thousand years ago, right? But that's precisely what happened 10,000 years ago. At around the same time that the Mesopotamians were discovering that agriculture was a pretty neat idea and inventing beer and bread, the planet Earth was inventing an entirely new type of biome. The tundra. That's right. Just north of the largest biome on Earth, the taiga, you have the youngest biome on Earth, the tundra. Of all the biomes, the tundra is uniformly the coldest. And, as a result, it is very harsh. Unlike the taiga, which we discussed last week, trees just can't live in the tundra. In fact, the word tundra comes from the Finnish word tunturia, which means treeless plain. In the summer, which can be as short as 60 days, the temperature rarely goes above 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And in the winter, the average temperature can be as low as 40 degrees Fahrenheit. But the tundra isn't just cold. Well, it is cold, but the cold isn't the most important defining feature. The biggest thing that makes the tundra the tundra is the soil, or rather, what lies right under the soil. See, precipitation varies in the tundra. It isn't like a desert with limited rainfall. It can rain there, and it certainly snows there, and the snow melts. The problem is what happens when that rain and melting snow hit the ground. Nothing. It just stays there. It saturates the surface. It pools and collects. During the warmer part of the year, the tundra is a boggy, muddy mess. And that's because just below the surface is a layer of permanently frozen soil called permafrost. Basically, in the winter, the water in the ground freezes. But the summer season is so short that only the upper surface of the ground has time to melt. Dig down just a little bit and you'll hit an area of hard, frozen ground. And that's a major problem if you're a plant. Especially if you're a big plant. It's hard to push roots through frozen ground, and it's hard to suck up ice through what basically amounts to a biological drinking straw. But that's not all. The other thing you need from the soil is nutrients. See, although we've talked in the past about how great plants are at pulling carbon and hydrogen and oxygen from the air and water from the ground and turning them all into sugar with the power of the sun, sugar isn't all you need to make a living thing live. All living things rely on other elements as well, like nitrogen and phosphorus. Most plants get those from the soil and the soil generally gets them from the decomposition of dead things or from animal wastes. When an animal poops on the ground, it is providing all sorts of helpful nutrients for plants. But some minerals are a little harder to come by. 
like sulfur and phosphorus. These minerals generally get into the groundwater thanks to rain falling in the mountains, eroding useful minerals, and carrying them via river into the lowlands. That's why the Nile River Valley and the area of Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers were such great places to invent and perfect agriculture. The soil was chock full of nutrients that were replenished every year by rains, floods, and runoff. The movement of water. In nutrient-poor soil, plants are forced to adopt different strategies for survival. For example, Last week, we mentioned carnivorous plants like Venus flytraps, pitcher plants, sundews, butterworts, and others when we were talking about how plants make their own food. And some of our listeners may have gotten a bit confused there. So let's clarify the idea of carnivorous plants while we're on the subject of terrible soil. Carnivorous plants are green plants. Like any plant, they power themselves with energy gathered through photosynthesis. The reason they are carnivorous, though, is because they evolved to live in areas where the soil quality is extremely poor. That is to say, the soil is lacking in nitrogen, a key component in proteins which regulate all chemical reactions in all living things. So instead of waiting for things to poop on them or die, carnivorous plants have come up with various ways to get their nitrogen from unlucky insects. By murder. Take, for example, the Venus flytrap. This famous plant has two broad leaves shaped like clamshells with finger-like extensions that look a little like teeth. When an insect lands on these leaves, tiny triggering hairs feel the presence and the leaves close like a mouth. The insect is trapped inside, dies, and gradually gets digested by the plant for its precious nitrogen and proteins. It should be noted that contrary to popular belief, Venus flytraps do not chew or swallow their victims. In fact, their leaves aren't mouths at all. They're more like a bear trap. They just close. Venus flytraps also lack lips, tongues, and lungs. So it would be impossible for one to sing R&B music in the voice of Levi Stubbs and to devour Steve Martin or Rick Moranis. Sorry to disappoint you. Other carnivorous plants include the pitcher plant, which has a bulbous vase-shaped leaf that fills with rainwater and digestive fluids. When an insect lands on the leaf, it falls into the water. Downward pointing fibers and a slick surface prevent the insect from climbing out of the open top stomach and it drowns and is gradually digested. The sundew's broad leaves are covered with sticky little tendrils. When insects land on the leaf, they get glued to the tendrils, and other tendrils bend and curl up, pulling the hapless bug into a deadly embrace. Basically, carnivorous plants are what happens when plants don't get enough fertilizer. So remember that when you care for your favorite houseplant. And they are about as exciting as the sarlacc pit monster. Sorry to disappoint you. But we digress. Back to the tundra. The lack of runoff and drainage prevents the ground from getting eroded down into nice powdery soil, and the lack of flowing water prevents the nutrients from getting dispersed through the soil. And the permafrost prevents deep root structures from feeding on groundwater all year round. And that's why the tundra lacks trees. That said, the tundra is very colorful, and there is a lot of plant life to find. It's not as impressive as towering conifers or massive ferns, and it's not as cool as bug-devouring monstrosities, but it is beautiful and colorful. See, what the tundra has in abundance, at least for two or three months out of the year, is a lot of ground-clinging flowering plants. 
these plants are perennials, which is a term you may have heard before when buying plants for your home garden. Broadly speaking, flowering plants come in two varieties. First you have annuals. They live for one year. That is to say, they are born from seeds, grow, drop their own baby seeds, and then die as the winter sets in. While annuals do replant themselves in the wild because they reproduce, for the most part, if you want annuals in your garden, you need to buy new ones every year and replant them. But in areas where the growing season is too short to allow an entire life cycle, perennials have evolved. Perennials are plants that appear to die, but actually stay alive underground with the nutrients stored in their root structures or their stems. So the tundra is home to lots of perennial plants with shallow, spreading root structures. They thrive during the summer months, all two of them, and then die off, but remain alive in the soil waiting for the next warm-up. And because they are small, they can survive on much smaller amounts of soil nutrients. And because they are low, they can survive the harsh winds of the tundra. And because they have spreading root structures, they can cling to the loose, gravelly surface soil. Now, where you have plants, you have animals. The tundra is not as diverse as other environments on Earth, but it does have its share of unique critters. Lots of the critters are migratory. For example, caribou that dwell in the taiga during the fall and winter seasons migrate to the tundra during the summer to feed on the rich ground plants and, helpfully, to poop all over the soil. Many migratory birds also live for part of the year in the tundra. Falcons, loons, gulls, and ravens call the tundra home for at least part of the year, feeding on seeds or on small rodents. Speaking of small rodents, animals that can breed and grow quickly and then store food away for a long, harsh winter thrive in the tundra. For example, one adorable little mouse-like critter called a pika lives in the tundra. You might recognize that as one half of the famous electric mouse from a certain popular, all-consuming franchise about capturing adorable animals and making them fight in gladiatorial duels. But the pika is actually more closely related to the rabbit than the mouse. And of course, where you have small mammals, you have larger mammals that will feed off of them. So, arctic foxes, wolves, and polar bears are all native to the tundra as well. Many of the tundra animals migrate. That is, they only live in the tundra for part of the year. Others survive the harsh winter through an amazing biological ability called hibernation. That comes from a Latin word that means to pass the winter. For example, when miners come down from the mountains to spend the winter in lowland cities and towns, they were occupying their winter quarters. But that process, in humans, is actually a type of migration. Same with the so-called snowbirds, people who live in New York in the summer but move to Florida in the winter. In animals, hibernation is different. See, we tend to think of hibernation as sleeping through the winter. And again, we all know people who engage in that practice. But hibernation isn't just sleeping. Hibernation is literally a near shutdown of the entire body. While hibernating, a creature's biological processes slow to a crawl. Its temperature drops, its pulse slows, and it basically goes into a sort of suspended animation. During this time, the animal lives off its supply of stored fat and nutrients. And, 
For that reason, prior to hibernation, many animals become hyperphagic. That is to say, they eat a whole heck of a lot and pack on the pounds. And while hibernation is generally a way to survive the winter in a harsh climate, some animals use hibernation as a way to focus their biological energy on other activities. The female polar bear, as one example, hibernates so that she can put all of her body energy into the young polar bear cubs growing inside of her. Polar bears actually give birth while hibernating, and the young polar bear cub is kept warm by the mass of the mother while it nurses and grows. So, in the tundra, you have plants that come to life and die, migrating animals that are just passing through, and hibernating animals that sleep through part of the year. And that means that the tundra's population is highly variable, and most of the life cycle of the tundra is about balancing that population. One means of population balance led to a great deal of confusion about one particular tundra dweller, which ended up on a suicide watch. And, while many blame the Walt Disney Company for the confusion, the fact is, they were only partly to blame. The confusion did, however, lead to an absolutely wonderful series of video games about the little critter. So let's talk lemmings. Lemmings are adorable little rodents, kind of like mice and voles and pikas. But lemmings have a reputation for being incredibly stupid. Or incredibly noble. It depends on how you interpret the evidence. The false evidence, as it turns out. See, in 1958, Walt Disney produced a series of nature documentaries called the True Life Adventure Series. One of them was White Wilderness, a documentary about the creatures of the frozen north. And in this documentary, they showed the world a teeming mass of furry little rodents marching off a cliff to their death. And they explained that the lemmings, because that's what they were, engaged in mass suicide when their population numbers grew too great to sustain. But the scene was staged by Disney. The documentary was filmed in Alberta, Canada, and the Norwegian lemmings had to be imported. And. After several weeks of the lemmings refusing to march themselves off a cliff into the sea to die, the producers got tired of waiting for the lemmings' strange suicidal compulsions to trigger and forced the issue by driving the pack into the sea while filming. Now, that is incredibly cruel. We're not saying it's not. But that story has become very well known and, in fact, that story is the reason why everyone blames Disney for the misconception that lemmings commit mass suicide. But the truth is, the idea predated Disney. Disney was trying to film something they actually thought was a true fact about these creatures. And lots of people thought it was true. In fact, the idea of lemmings mindlessly marching off a cliff into the sea was even mentioned in a sci-fi short story about population control through mass suicide called The Marching Morons in 1951, written by Cyril M. Kornbluth. Arthur C. Clarke once blamed the same behavior on possession by aliens in a 1953 short story called The Possessed. Now let's be clear. This is a myth. Lemmings are neither stupid nor self-sacrificial. 
They are, in fact, extremely clever rodents, skilled burrowers, and excellent swimmers. And they do not throw themselves into the sea when their population surges. They just become cannibalistic. That's right. Sometimes, when there are too many lemmings and not enough food, the lemmings start eating each other. Isn't that cute? The suicide story probably stems from the fact that lemming populations are highly variable and tend to run on a four-year cycle. At the lowest point in the cycle, lemmings become extremely rare. But in times of high population, you might get thousands of them in an area of 20 acres. That's just 20 football fields. So imagine the area under two American football fields as home to 5,000 burrowing rodents. It gets pretty crowded. And as things get crowded and food gets scarce, the lemmings follow a population reduction scheme called dispersal. The community breaks up into small armies, which then march across the tundra, gradually spreading out and seeking new homes. The ones that don't eat each other, anyway. As they march, they march mindlessly, crossing small bodies of water and consuming everything they find in their wake. And when the dispersal is done, the lemming population in the area is greatly reduced. Well, that weird behavior of suddenly mindlessly marching off into the distance and the population suddenly all but disappearing led to the myth in Norway that lemmings go on a death march to the sea. In fact, it's not the only crazy theory about lemmings. According to some folklore, and also one German geographer named Ziegler who wrote about it in the 1530s, lemmings came from the sky. During stormy weather, they would appear in the clouds and fall to earth. Danish physician Olas Wormius, who went by the nickname Old Worm, thought that theory was ridiculous. He said lemmings couldn't possibly be born in the clouds. No, wind must carry them from far off lands and then they fall with the spring rain. Of course, the most entertaining example of the death march of the lemmings, insofar as any death march is entertaining, comes from a British video game developer called DMA Design. While they had developed several games in partnership with publisher Cygnosis and had been moderately successful, their breakout hit was the 1991 release of Lemmings. While it was originally released for Amiga home computers, it was eventually ported to basically everything that could run a game, including our favorite version, the one on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Seriously, play that one. The wonderful, catchy, upbeat music that was the series' hallmark hit its absolute peak on the SNES. In the game, a group of mindlessly marching lemmings are dropped into a dangerous two-dimensional puzzlescape, and the player must assign lemmings specific tasks to clear obstacles and corral the mindless rodents toward the safety of the exit. And when things went wrong, the player could cause the lemmings to explode to restart the level. This is another misconception. Lemmings do not explode. But how can you use any of this in your game? Well, again, 
the tundra is an interesting place to adventure, and it's nice to have some flavor text. And while carnivorous plants in the real world are boring, add some magic to the environment, and there's nothing that says you can't have assassin vines and giant chomping Audrey 2 monsters with a few class levels and bards so they can belt out the R&B tunes. But one of the things that often gets forgotten in fantasy worlds is that the world basically shuts down in the winter. Not just the tundra, but everywhere. Travel becomes precarious. Ships stay home. And people really do come down from the mines to winter in larger towns. And all of that relies on various settlements putting away enough food for the winter. Essentially, every town and city in the medieval fantasy world is like a hibernating animal. It has to store enough food to sleep through the winter, and when food is in short supply, you can take a lesson from the not-at-all-stupid lemming. Sometimes, people start fighting or killing for resources when they are packed too close together. And sometimes, populations get forced into exile. And, in a world of magic, sometimes the gods might just make some of them explode. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventurers.com.